In late September, Vladimir Putin held a big ceremony in the Kremlin. Pompous, or you could say grand if you're being kind, ceremony uh, in a kind of gold-painted reception room watched by the most important people in this government. The foreign minister was there, the head of the spy agencies. And Putin basically says that Kazan is now, is a Russian city, it's Russia's forever. But anyway, if, if you go forward, uh, forever turns out to be six weeks. Tonight, euphoria in Kherson, a major Ukrainian city now free from Russian rule. Ukrainians hugging and kissing their soldiers, treating them as heroes, autographing flags. On Today Explained, how Ukrainian troops pulled off a decisive win in Kherson and humiliated Vladimir Putin. A rare moment of good news in a war which has caused so much pain. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. It's Today Explained. I'm Noel King, and you are? My name is Luke Harding. I'm a journalist and foreign correspondent with The Guardian newspaper and a writer of books. Describe, Luke, if you would, where Kherson is and what makes it significant in this war. Kherson is a port uh, and a city in the south of Ukraine on the Dnieper River, which is a, a massive river with many tributaries that runs across the country, basically dividing Ukraine into two halves, east and west. It's a Russian-speaking city, so, so people there are native Russian speakers. It has a population or had a population of about 300,000 people, perhaps a little shy of that, maybe 280,000 before Vladimir Putin's invasion in February of this year. Its significance is it was the first and the only major regional administrative capital which the Russians occupied. It was a jewel. It was a kind of prize. Uh, and it was a place that they captured very early on in the first days of invasion. What happened on November 11th? The Russians executed a massive and humiliating retreat. They basically abandoned territory that they seized early on in, in the invasion in February. Uh, we're talking about a huge swathe of territory on what Ukrainians call the right bank, the western side of the Dnieper River. It's a sort of bulge, including about 80 settlements. It's steppe land. It's rustic. We're talking about fields of sunflowers, 
of villages with gravel roads, schools, cottages, lots of animals, geese, ducks, dogs yapping, pine trees, poplars, um, and, th and then the city, the sort of administrative heart of Herzon province, which is also called Herzon, on this wide, rather beautiful Dnieper River. And Herzon sits on one side of this, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a big, functional, modern, uh, busy city, or at least it was, with, with an art gallery, with a neoclassical administration building, with a train station. All this time we were like um, in prison. We, we could walk around the city, but everywhere we saw uh, these Russian troops uh, with a weapon. Uh, they, they could just catch you. you could... And this whole area had been occupied by the, the Russians for, for eight months, and they packed up. And having talked to people there, it seems that they, the Russian troops got an order about 5 a.m. local time on Wednesday the 9th of November. Yes, 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 yes. No, the Russia. And they got into their armored vehicles, they stuffed them full of things that they'd stolen, everything from microwaves to washing machines to, to ladies' clothes to, to whatever they could find. And they rolled off back across the Dnieper uh, with some soldiers jogging across a pontoon bridge, others trying to swim over, and, and some leaving in good order on military vehicles. So it was a huge Russian exodus and I think a turning point in this, in this war. How did Russia take this city and this province in the first place? If you sort of cast your mind back to February the 24th, to the, the fear and dread and, and the horror in America and elsewhere at, at Putin's invasion, it was a sort of multi-pronged, a multi-vector assault with Russian troops advancing from the north, from Belarus, through the forests surrounding Chernobyl, the, the nuclear power plant from the east, where th there'd been a war going on already for eight years over a, a territory called the Donbass. And then in the south, where I had been standing in January, three weeks later, Russian tanks, armored vehicles came rolling over the scenic isthmus, a place of, of ducks, of high yellow feather reeds uh, across this landscape, and they kept going. And what's interesting is they went all the way through the sort of southern chunk of Herzon province, and they got to a sort of key strategic installation, which is called the Antonovsky or the Antonivsky Bridge, which is about two kilometers long, spans the Dnieper River, and leads directly into Herzon City. And by pretty much, I would say, March the 2nd, 2022, they had seized the city and a key part of southern Ukraine had fallen. Ukrainian officials say the battles continue there and claim Russian forces are looting the city. The Russians, Vladimir Putin, had thought that his troops would be greeted as liberators, that people would rush up to them with flowers and hug them and so on. And, and in fact, there was a military fight back by the Ukrainian army, which we saw most spectacularly around Kiev, pushing the Russians back after about a month of fighting. But also in Kherson, we just saw civilians, hundreds of them, perhaps as many as a thousand, gathering in the main uh, square outside the administration building, facing off against the perimeter of Russian machine gunners, of, of, of what the Ukrainians call technical vehicles, basically armored vehicles, waving Ukrainian flags, singing uh, patriotic songs, holding banners which said in Ukrainian, Herson is Ukraine, and shouting at these Russians saying, fascists, go home, occupiers, we don't want you here. The first time this happened, the Russian soldiers were relatively 
restrained. They didn't do a huge amount. I think they were completely taken aback by, by this. But gradually and, and predictably, they became more and more brutal. And we saw Russian soldiers firing angrily into the air and uh, eventually by week two, hurling smoke grenades and forcibly breaking up demonstrations. And, and, and the darkest aspect of all this is that we saw really by, I would say, the third week of March, by uh, around March 20th, 25th, something like that, a, a massive sweep by uh, Russian military police to round up anyone who had a sort of what they regarded as a sort of pro-Ukrainian attitude. So we're talking about people who are in the police force, council workers, people on the state payroll, journalists, intellectuals, museum curators. By kind of mid-spring, people in Kherson were disappearing. They were being tortured. In some places, they were being killed and, and, and murdered. And now the city has been liberated, you know, we're piecing together some of those stories, and they are, they're horrific. How on earth did Russia lose control after having such firm control? Really what happened, actually, was, was Joe Biden happened, and, and the, the U.S. administration, and, and plus other Western partners of Ukraine, including the U.K., by the summer, by, uh, I would say, probably late June, early July, they started um, supplying Kiev, the government of uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky, with a kind of sophisticated, modern, heavy weaponry that uh, Ukraine would be begging for. And, and so I think the game changer, actually, or the, the critical enabler is how it's been described to me, was um, the HIMARS system supplied by America. It's, it's a h- highly accurate, precision-guided, long-range artillery system where you scoot and shoot. I mean, I've seen them in, in southern Ukraine. It's, it's, it looks like a kind of rather large green-painted truck, but it's got a pod of six missiles and they are devastatingly accurate. Basically, if you, if you hit a grid in military parlance and military speech with these weapons, it will destroy, destroy everything on the grid. And, and so what the Ukrainians were able to do uh, sort of systematically and clinically from, I would say, about July onwards was to degrade Russian logistics routes and supply lines. And what the Russians realized to their horror was that it was becoming increasingly hard to supply their, their forward forces in, in this large, sprawling, rustic, flat oblast. And I think probably by about October, they had decided that it was just not viable to, to hold this territory on the, the right bank of the Dnieper River, Kazan and its environs. And, and again, we know that not because they said so. Obviously, these conversations are secret. We know that because they be- began stealing Everything. And when I say everything, they stole the city archives in Kherson. They stole hundreds, possibly thousands of private cars, TV sets, microwaves. They went to Kherson Zoo. And and I I kid you not, they stole the llamas, the donkeys, the wolves, and, 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 not to forget, they stole the raccoon. They stole the zoo's raccoon, uh, bundled it in a sack, and uh, shipped it all off to Crimea. And so it, it was kind of clear that they were preparing an evacuation. So when they did leave, it wasn't a surprise. But at the same time, this was a deeply, deeply humiliating moment for Vladimir Putin. What does Vladimir Putin do? Of course, this was embarrassing. And Putin is a strong man, someone who, you've seen him, you've seen the images, who, who scuba dives, who, who fishes bare-chested in Siberian rivers, who, who is an action man, does judo, etc., and his troops were running away. And, or as one, one Kherson villager put it to me, they, they, they left our village like goats. He said, like goats. Describe them as goats running away. Uh, and so, of course, how does Putin respond? 
Putin responds by doing what he's done several times this autumn, which is to blitz Ukraine with deadly long-range missiles fired from, from Russia itself. Tonight, Ukrainians reeling from a relentless Russian missile barrage. The strikes targeting critical civilian infrastructure across the country, from Kyiv to Kharkiv to Zaporizhia. In the capital city, 350,000 homes left without electricity, while 80% of residents lost drinking water. According to Putin is really in the most cynical way. He can't win on the battlefield. He's now trying to, to break morale among civilians um, and, and so to hope that he can win that way instead. All right, so Vladimir Putin is one side of the equation, and the other side of the equation is Volodymyr Zelensky. How does he respond to Ukraine retaking Kherson? One of my colleagues describes Zelensky as Churchill with an iPhone. Uh, and, and what Churchill with an iPhone has been doing has been recording these messages, both for a domestic audience and for the wider world, for, for Americans, for Brits, for whoever. We're ready for peace, but our peace for our country is all our country, all our territory. That's why we, we are fighting against Russian aggression. He was quite careful when Kherson was retaken. I mean, there was nothing triumphalist about it. He said it was, you know, it was a great victory, but also urged people living there to be very careful of mines, to watch out for Russian soldiers or saboteurs who may have stayed behind um, to cause trouble. Three days after the city was liberated, he came for himself. I mean, that, that didn't surprise me. He, he, he turned up to Kherson. I mean, he... he He's a kind of genuine action man in the way that Vladimir Putin is a kind of fake action man. And there was a very moving ceremony outside the administration building where people have been dancing, celebrating, embracing soldiers, uh, smoking, singing sort of slogans. And a pretty serious-looking Zelensky stood there wearing kind of olive green jacket, fleece jacket, and he watched the Ukrainian flag being, being raised, and he saluted. I mean, he, he, he described it as not, not the end of the war. Again, channeling Churchill here. Is it the beginning of the, of the end of the war? It's a pity, but it's a long way, this war, to the best heroes of our country. Ah, this is not the end. Uh, it is not even the beginning of the end. Uh, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Ukraine has now recaptured more than 50% of the territory it's lost since February the 24th. I mean, the Russian military is still there. It's still formidable. Putin still thinks, against all evidence, he can win this war uh, and is not, is not letting up. But I think the shape of a Ukrainian victory, while we're not there yet, is sort of shimmering to view. It's, it's becoming a possibility, tantalizing possibility. <laughs> Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile, the only cell phone that tastes good. When the deal is too good to be true, there's probably a catch, right? That incredibly cheap flight to Europe? 
You probably can't bring a bag or pick your seat or use the restroom. So when I tell you that Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably wondering, what's the catch? Well, according to Mint Mobile, there is no catch. According to Mint Mobile, it's only 15 bucks a month and their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explain. That is mintmobile.com slash explain. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explain. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is so cheap that Mint Mobile knows you think there must be a catch. Mint Mobile says no, there is no catch. And for a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com explained. That's mintmobile.com explained. You could cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com explained. There's a $45 upfront payment that's required that's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan, and additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for details. It's Today Explained. I'm Noel King. Luke Harding of The Guardian, President Volodymyr Zelensky has called on Ukrainians to fight through the winter. And many military analysts were very surprised by Zelensky making that call. Why is it so surprising? I'm not sure I actually agree with the military analysts. I don't think it's surprising. I think it's inevitable. I mean, the logic from Zelensky's point of view and from that of his sort of chief general, Valery Zeluzhny, is that when your enemy is on the run, you, you you don't give up and give them time to regroup and consolidate. You you keep going. And so we, we don't know where the Ukrainians will push next. Ukrainian soldiers were given a hero's welcome as the crowd chanted for the military. Certainly when I was there, it felt like war. It didn't feel like peace. I mean, it's easy to see these pictures of, of jubilant crowds and Kazan and think, oh, it's all over. No, I, I mean, I was hearing the boom, boom, boom from Ukrainian artillery and, and also the whoosh, whoosh of outgoing Grad missiles, which were, which were sort of blitzing over the Dnipro to, to Russian military positions on the other side and some incoming missiles as well. The winter will not deter Ukrainian forces. And, and just one other thing you have to understand is that people support them. There was no support for Putin's project in Kherson. Every, everybody hated the Russians. And so I think with the support of the local population, which is overwhelming, you can kind of mitigate some of the issues thrown out by the fact that it's cold, dark, uh, and a bit miserable. Do Ukrainians have what they need to fight through the winter? I've seen lots of Ukrainian soldiers. Actually, I mean, I was in their frontline trenches around about the 7th and the 8th of November. I was having a little chat with a soldier from Lviv called Sergei. He showed me his lunch. He had pasties. He was drinking grape juice. They were cooking for themselves in this kind of underground kitchen. They had a gas canister. Soup. Ooh. Please. 
It's almost like a city in the forest for these guys. They've got the places to eat and kilometers of trenches. And I looked at their sleeping quarters. I mean, even, even in the trenches, they're relatively snug. They have a generator to charge their mobile phones. It's not ideal. Of course not. It's, it's tough, but it's doable. I, I think the, the, the big concern, the strategic concern from the Ukrainian side is that this extraordinary anti-Kremlin coalition led by America, led by the Biden administration, might get fatigued, uh, there may be political pressures, everyone knows inflation is up, that economies are in poor shape, that, that governments generally all over the place are pretty unpopular at the moment. They're worried about whether the West will stay the course. Now, for now, especially in the light of the midterms and the unexpectedly good showing by the Democrats, I think those fears are assuaged. But what the Ukrainians want, what they say they want, is weapons, weapons, weapons still. They're burning through artillery at a tremendous rate. And what about the Russians? Do they have what they need? They were in total disarray last winter. I mean, we can expect more disarray from the Russian troops. I mean, there have been lots of videos of newly mobilized guys sometimes literally kind of scooped up in provincial Russian towns and villages being sent to the front after two weeks training, if you can call it that. We were officially told that there would be no training before being sent to the combat zone, this recruit says. We had no shooting, no tactical training, no theoretical training, nothing. Given inadequate clothing, nothing to eat, weapons that are old or don't work, and being flung into battle against pretty experienced, pretty ruthless now very effective Ukrainian army. And of course, what we're seeing is we're seeing huge casualties. A lot of Russians are being killed. A lot of newly mobilized uh, troops are being killed as well. But I don't think this makes any difference because the the, the point is that the Ukraine is a democracy, right? It has sort of civil society. It has journalists like me, you know, or from the New York Times, the Washington Post. We we can wander around and do pretty much what we want. Whereas Russia really is... It's not only an autocracy. I mean, it's increasingly totalitarian. I mean, it's it's close to being a full-blown totalitarian state where, you know, Putin doesn't care if 50,000 people are killed, 100,000 people are killed, 200,000 people are killed. And w- what's happened is we've had this mass mobilization with, so far, I think as many as 80,000, but probably over the next few months, it's going to be about 200,000 new troops sent to the front line of the war in Ukraine. And Putin's calculation appears to be that these troops will turn things around, help stabilize the line, prevent Ukrainians from taking further territory, and also prepare for the spring when Russia will will try and go forward again. That, that's the plan. But I, I, I think actually the reality is that these mobilized troops, a lot of them don't want to fight. They certainly don't want to die. And I'm not actually sure if they will if they make the difference the Kremlin thinks they will make. And so if Kherson really is a sea change and Russia appears to be on its back foot, what's Ukraine's strategy at this point? Well, I mean, Zelensky has been very clear that he wants to liberate all Ukrainian territory. And all of it means not just the land that's been lost since February the 24th, since Putin's invasion, but Crimea, which which Russia stole in 2014, and Luhansk and which have been run by pro-Russian separatist proxies for eight years as well. So he wants to completely evict the Russians and to restore um, his nation's borders as they were when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And, and by the way, when, when an overwhelming majority of uh, Ukrainians voted for independence from Russia. So that's what he wants. Now, th- there may come a kind of inflection point or a sort of a decision point or a dilemma, you could call it, uh, if and when the Ukrainians seize more territory in the south, 
whether they, at that point, they keep going to try and take back Crimea, because that will be harder. I mean, in Kherson, 99% of the population were against uh, Russia. In Crimea, it's tricky, because there's definitely a, a genuine sort of pro-Russian uh, population there, if only because the pro-Ukrainian sort of Crimeans left were forced out or have been arrested, deported, intimidated and tortured and so on. But but essentially, Zelensky has said that he will not negotiate with this Russian president, in other words, Putin. Putin lies all the time, he cheats all the time, uh, and they think that if, the, if there's a bad deal, that Putin will just use, use a window, let's say, to, to rebuild his army and to attack Kiev again. Okay, do the flip side. What's Russia's military strategy now? If I can be crude, it, it's fuck youism. Uh, essentially, Russia's not been able to prevail. It, it wanted to take Kiev and install a, a pro-Russian puppet administration. That, that plan failed, fell apart in spring, uh, and the Russians retreated. It wanted to take Kharkiv, which is a big Russian-speaking city very close to the border and to the Russian city of Belgorod. That didn't happen either. That whole area has just been liberated by, by Ukrainians. And it wanted to build a kind of new imperium around the south and the Black Sea with Kherson, this, this, this port city, historical city, uh, as a kind of key, key fulcrum. That didn't work either. And, and so, so what Putin is doing, fuck is just destroying as much as he can. The truth is Moscow's forces built nothing and destroyed much. This is the TV tower, which they blew up as they left, cutting telephone services and the internet. There are missile strikes on, on Ukrainian energy infrastructure to make, make everything dark and to, to switch off electricity. But also what I've seen, what I've seen with my own eyes, is Russians, for example, leaving villages in the south of Kherson province. And before they go, I was in a village called Mialova on the 11th of November. They blew up the school. It's a village of 1,000 people, 300 stayed during the operation. They blew up the school and they blew up the nursery where they'd been living, and they blew up the TV tower. So these villagers, they, they didn't have everything, but they had pretty reasonable lives, have no school, they've got no heating, they've got no electricity, they've got no water, they've got no gas. They've gone back 30 years, as one of them put it to me. It's not just sort of killing people, rubbing them out physically, it's rubbleizing Ukraine, turning it into a wasteland. And it's vindictiveness, there's something sociopathic about it, but at the moment, this appears to be current Russian military strategy. Luke Harding of The Guardian. His book, out November 29th, is called Invasion. It's about the war. Today's show was produced by Victoria Chamberlain and Halima Shah. It was edited by Matthew Collette. Fact-checking was a team effort led by Laura Bullard and engineering by Afim Shapiro. I'm Noel King. It's Today Explained. <laughs> 